Welcome to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. Welcome, everyone, to News Data's Energy West. It's February 28th. I'm Dan Cashpole, a reporter with News Data's Clearing Up, covering the Northwest energy markets and energy industry happenings, goings on. Joined by my colleague, Jason Fordney, editor of our sister publication, California Energy Markets. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm great, Dan. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing well, thanks. Rested. I was off last week. Uh, but yeah. yeah, we've got updates for you about what's going on in the energy world and in, in the West, uh, hoping to help listeners be a little bit smarter uh, and better informed about the the industry out here. And of course, as always, you can check out more of our content on our website, newsdata.com, where you can find uh, articles and more from California Energy Markets and uh, Clearing Up. But uh, yeah, so even though I was off last week, I have to say I spent a lot of time, probably more time than my my wife was excited, like cared for, uh, yeah. following the twists and turns as much as I was able of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I know everyone's talking about it to listeners. Might be sick of hearing about it, but um, yeah, I, I was enthralled. Uh, my you know, in college, I, my major was former Soviet states with a focus on security affairs. And back in 2008, I went over to Tbilisi to cover the aftermath of the uh, of Russia's uh, uh, invasion of Georgia. I was covering wow. it for a few uh, U.S. newspapers. So, at, yeah, this is something uh, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, do, can, do you know much Russian? I got to ask. Uh, very rusty. Yeah. I, I will say I've been dusting it off. It's been All jogging right. my memory lately. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've been following as much as possible Russian language uh, you know, social media feeds and, and new sites to get their take on it. And also it's wow, somewhat close to Ukrainian. Uh, Russians will tell you Ukrainian is a dialect of, of Russian um, <laughs> or Russophiles, Russian Russophiles, I should say. Yeah. Uh, Ukrainians definitely disagree about that. And uh, there's some significant difference between them. But anyways, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I knew enough of it back in 2008 to do interviews in, in Russian. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's pretty rusty. Uh, what's, so. what's your uh, what's your take on energy things? As you know, we mentioned uh, the U.S. has left oil and gas out of its Russian sanctions, which I thought was interesting and shows the critical um, importance of gas and oil. And um, you know, I don't know if that will change, but that's one one thing that stuck out to me. Yeah, very telling. I thought about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it, it, it goes to this, the relationship between Russia and the the global energy markets, but also particularly uh, Russia and Europe, where it's. I don't want to say love hate relationship. That's that doesn't quite uh, capture it, but that Europe is somewhat dependent because of the the energy infrastructure they built. They're they're. Uh, or not independent, they're dependent on Russia, uh, particularly because, I mean, they've got all these gas pipelines 
going into Europe that they depend on. And Russia has shown that it is willing to use those as leverage to, you know, in, uh, for over political issues. They've cut gas exports in the past, particularly to Ukraine um, and others mm -hmm. uh, to kind of, again, as leverage. And I have to say as a, back when I was in college studying this, it just always struck me as so uh, short-sighted by Western Europe to be pursuing more natural gas infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess the reality, you know, they're the realities of um, the the energy demands they have and and meeting those. But at the same time, it just seems like, yeah, again, Russia has shown its its willingness to use these energy supplies as leverage in political issues and building new pipelines. You're just, yeah, ensuring that. You're going right. to be more dependent and more open to that influence for decades to come. And so, um, yep. you know, seeing Germany say, okay, well, we're not going to, we're going to put Nord Stream 2 on the shelf that I thought was, you know, glad to see that as a um, observer of this, but it's still, they, as at least from what I've seen, I, I, this may have changed, but I didn't see Germany come out and say, that's just, we're taking that off the table, which I think yeah. is the wiser long-term move, but you know, they're talking about going back to uh, some nuclear energy to, as they uh, bring on more renewables. So they could displace natural gas um, dependence for uh, you know, other forms of energy. The, the mm -hmm. other reality is, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in coming decades as the uh, world energy infrastructure shifts away from fossil fuels and Russia is a resource intensive economy mm -hmm. and they've expanded their economy, um, economic sectors and uh, to tech and some others, but it just not aggressively and not uh, successfully enough to uh, make up for the loss of the yeah. resource market. So anyways, I, I could talk about this for hours. Sure. Uh, and I, I already probably yeah. rambled on too long, so I'm going to wrap oh, that up, okay. but, uh, yeah. yeah, my, my heart goes out to the fight, the people on both sides who are, uh, yeah, the, the a lot of the Russian soldiers are conscripts who, uh, from what I've seen from, uh, you know, verified sources, they're, they're not thrilled to be there. No. They don't understand the conflict. Obviously, Ukrainians did not choose this fight. Uh, and it's been tragic to see, you know, especially uh, how the the stories of civilians dying. I was reading this really painful uh, Associated Press story about a six-year-old uh, who was at the grocery store, I think, with her mother and father. And uh, there was shelling in, this, in the city of Mariupol on the uh, coast of the Sea of Azov. Uh, and, you know, she was wounded and the AP reporter was there and followed her to the hospital and uh, you know, recounted it in, in succinct, but really uh, just gripping, cutting detail, um, the fight to save this girl's life. And, you know, that ultimately was not successful. And, um, you know, it's, 
right? The, the age that my kids are, but I mean, it's, it, I, I think anybody who reads it, whether you've got kids or not, is going to, you know, it's just painful. Uh, anyways. Um, yeah. So I will say that. So in 2008, I went over to Russia or sorry, to Tbilisi in Georgia to cover the aftermath of Russia's invasion of, of Georgia. And I went up into some of the roadblocks and interviewed some Russian soldiers. And, you know, one thing I heard from them then, and you're, we're hearing from Russian soldiers now is that they, you know, they're saying, we don't understand why we're here. Why did we bother to invade Georgia? Why do we care about South Ossetia, the breakaway province that um, Russia used as a provocation to uh, invade Georgia? And we're hearing the same things nowadays. Um, so right. anyways, okay. Sorry for the long. Oh, that's all right. It's a, it's, a, it's a very central topic right now is in, you know, we're not used to seeing wars fought in real time on social media or, you know, viewed by social media which just makes it that much more, uh, you know, intense and, uh, yeah, I hate to see it and hopefully things will get better there. Yeah. I, I mean, like a classic ground war in Europe. I mean, Kharkov, Kiev, yep. Mariupol, Crimea, Odessa. And the last times we heard about fighting in this was literally in world war two. I know when, you know, the Nazi German and, and Soviet armies were engaging these, you know, uh, titanic struggles and it's just so surreal to Never hear about is. pitched battles in the 21st century in these same cities it's a reality yeah. check for all of us um yeah and a lot uh, a lot at stake in global dynamics and uh in all types of sectors and um you know the human cost of course being the, the most uh disturbing thing about it yeah yeah so okay Sorry, listeners, for the long uh, yeah, tangent. But okay, so energy in the West. Uh, yes. Back to what what we know, um, as opposed to just have thoughts about. So, Jason, yeah. you guys have the top story about uh, for this week. So, why don't you yeah. make us smarter, Jason? Okay, I will do my best. Uh, we our lead story was on a new California Energy Commission report. It's actually their almanac. Uh, the title of the article, New Data Shows California is on its path to energy goals despite hydro loss and project delays. Uh, according to this report, which has updated information on uh, California's clean energy goals, uh, shows that 59% of the state's electricity delivered in 2020 was from renewable and zero carbon resources, according to this, which is called the 2021 Annual California Clean Energy Almanac, released on February 22nd. Uh, interesting, in, in 2019, the figure was actually higher, 66% compared to 59% in 2020. And the reason for this was loss of uh, hydroelectric generation caused by the severe drought that we're under, and also pandemic-related delays to new renewable energy projects. The contribution from large hydro decreased 20% year over year from 2019 to 2020. Uh, and it was the output was 13.9% in 2020. And the total drop in hydro generation attributable to drought was 1,000 megawatts, not a small number. The CEC said the reduction in renewables portfolio standard eligible renewables is mostly due to decreased production from small hydroelectric 
which dropped by over 40% compared to 2019. And delays to new clean energy projects contributed to a 50% drop in new in-state RPS generation. We reported on supply chain a good bit in CEM, um, and it's affecting uh, battery storage in particular. And RPS-eligible resources, namely wind and solar, contributed 34.5% of 2020 retail electric sales. With the addition of large hydro, nuclear, and other zero-carbon generation, that increases to the 59%. The state added 3,850 megawatts of new energy capacity between July 2020 and August 2021. So our, our next uh, top story in this week's CEM is from our uh, conference that we had on Thursday and Friday last week, which went really well. Uh, that was our Western Electric System Transformation Connecting the West Virtual Conference produced by CJB Energy Economics and News Data. Our keynote was by California Independent System Operator, President and CEO, Elliot Mainzer. And the theme of his keynote was, quote, some assembly required, unquote. And what he said was the Western grids in the midst of a critical period that will require unprecedented cooperation and coordination to maintain adequate resources and reliability. This is something we've seen Elliot really focus on since he became Kaisa CEO is uh, outreach across the West collaboration, cooperation, which seems to be his strong point. Obviously he was former head of the Bonneville Power Administration. So he has a lot of experience in the West, a lot of contacts and it seems to be bearing some fruit. What Mainzer said was, quote, this is the most consequential period for the Western power system in the last 50 years. As he uh, opened the conference, he said the goal is a clean, reliable, and cost-effective power system in the West, but there's some assembly required. Uh, he said that bringing out the best value for the Western grid will require pooling intellectual capital and physical assets like never before. Uh, and to him, the cornerstone of a United Western market is resource adequacy, along with a well-designed market, uh, effective transmission coordination, and equitable government governance. Governance being a big uh, ongoing issue with any type of Western uh, market or RTO. Uh, resource adequacy is a central building block in an area where the most divisive issues in the West pop up because when problems develop there, it really puts a spotlight on resource scarcity and the self-interest of Western entities. That's according to Mr. Mainzer. We also had a story from Linda Daly Paulson uh, from our conference. It was entitled, Grid Transformation Poses Challenges for Western Entities. Again, the theme being uh, the change happening on the Western grid, uh, also prompted by uh, policies such as electrification and decarbonization. How is the grid adapting? Uh, we had several panels on this, um, including Mark Rothleder, who's chief operating officer at Kaiso. He said that the changes have three dimensions, load, flows, and resources. As decarbonization efforts continue, the shape of various loads will also change. Peaks are shifting later in the day. Solar will be yes, less useful, and resources such as battery storage will be increasingly important. He said Kaiso is seeing substantial changes in energy import export flow patterns. Not only are less imports available, but how energy flows during extreme weather conditions is also changing. And we do have the Western energy imbalance market. Um, 
which to him offers a promise that the energy can find its way to where it's really needs exists. But uh, whether this can really happen uh, as the West Coast is experiencing extreme weather is a big concern, according to Rothleder. Uh, one more thing from him, he said, resource adequacy requirement changes from 15% to 22.5% by 2023 reflects a need to add more capacity and address these load changes. New resources may come online, but their questions is how these new technologies can be integrated and how they can also be employed to address capacity shortfalls. Of course, we're seeing a lot of storage coming onto the KISO grid. And lastly, we had a story on the biogas boom coming to California, but health concerns linger. This is from our staff writer, David Krauss. By the way, that was Linda Daly Paulson that covered the last article I discussed. Um, the biogas boom, the California Public Utilities Commission on February 24th unanimously approved a decision to burn to turn millions of tons of organic waste each year into biogas or, or renewable natural gas to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Southern California Gas Company will be responsible for procuring about 8.6 billion cubic feet of RNG through this program by 2025. Pacific Glass and Electric, about 7.4 billion cubic feet. SDG&E, San Diego Gas and Electric, about 1.1 billion cubic feet. Southwest Gas, 0.28 billion cubic feet. Biomethane projects that use waste byproducts such as sewage study and biochar will be prioritized according to this CPUC decision. The IOUs must update the renewable gas interconnection tariffs to require a hydrogen sulfide limit in relevant gathering lines of 10 parts per million, the decision says. Hydrogen sulfide is an extremely hazardous gas that smells like a rotten egg, according to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. We, we appeal to all your senses here at CEM. Uh, the CPUC will spend $1 million over a three-year period to study the health consequences associated with consistent, consist, how do I say this? constituents of concern in biogas, such as hydrogen sulfide and carbon monoxide. You can read more about this and other stories at newsdata.com. And uh, so, Dan, what's happening in the Northwest this week? Well, uh, we've got a lot of uh, fish news, mostly fish and hydropower, which are you can't talk about one without talking about the other. Right. So the last week, FERC issued a draft environmental impact statement that tentatively approves a plan to remove four hydroelectric dams on the lower Klamath. Klamath River. Uh, the proposal comes from dam owners, Klamath River Renewal Corporation and uh, Pacific Corps, a utility owned by Berkshire Hathaway. The DEIS used their proposal, but uh, added numerous modifications from FERC staff as its preferred alternative. They also looked at just the uh, Klamath River Renewal Corporation Pacific proposals uh, and Pacific Corps' proposal you know, without modifications and uh, also a scenario just leaving the four dams in, in place. Uh, the four dams, J.C. Boyle, Copco Number 1, Copco Number 2, and Iron Gate Developments generate 100, or they have a capacity of 163 megawatts of hydropower. So the DEIS primarily addressed what removal means for the dam's reservoirs uh, and using them for flood control, recreation, and other things, how they'll affect fish, wildlife, the environment. And as those reservoirs empty, 
will the proposal do a good enough job restoring vegetation to the land that was uh, formerly is now underwater? And also then, you know, how removing the dams will affect property owners, uh, including losing waterfront access or, uh, you know, waterfront property that now I guess will be, would be up the hill from the water and also losing water for firefighting. So uh, the 989 page document is open for public comment until April 18th. And the final environmental impact statement is expected this fall. So that story comes from my colleague, Casey Mahaffey, and uh, you can learn more about it at newsdata, newsdata.com. So let's see what else uh, is going on. So the Northwest Power and Conservation Council announced that it will hold a public meeting to discuss removing other dams. Uh, these ones, the federally owned and operated Lower Snake River dams that are part of the regional Columbia River hydropower system. So they're trying to use, or they're coming out with a scope for evaluating the effects on the energy, the regional energy system, uh, what the effects would be on the system of removing those, those dams. Very contentious issue, which uh, I covered in uh, last week, last, the latest issue of, uh, or sorry, not the latest issue, two issues ago of uh, clearing up. And you can read more about that. Uh, at newsdata.com. Then salmon researchers say that even though pink salmon bounced back in the North Pacific in 2021, they could have reached, the salmon populations in the Northwest could have reached the tipping point where we're just going to see constant decline uh, in their populations. Uh, So they, like I said, salmon, pink salmon, came back, but the numbers don't look good for other salmon, and which they say is uh, really indicative of all the salmon populations. And um, yeah, not good news, unfortunately. That no. also comes from Casey Mahaffey. And then uh, the Oregon or Oregon rela- regulators okayed part of Portland General Electric's demand response pilot program. They uh, Portland General Electric wants to do a two-year plan uh, that would cost $24 million, include uh, several demand response programs that they would be piloting. DR uh, is not, there's not a lot of it in the Northwest. Idaho Power has a significant amount for uh, that they, based on irrigation, really. Um, and they, but that, the the room for expanding their DR program with irrigation is, is pretty marginal at this point. Uh, the, so, Outside of that, very little DR demand response in the Northwest, but it is something that really is becoming a much major, much bigger part of uh, utilities plans for the future. A lot of utilities exploring various pilot programs, trying to acquire more DR capacity. Uh, so you know, as they as we tra- transition to the energy future, renew built on largely on renewables. Uh, their utilities are much more interested in uh, developing and spending money, investing in demand response to shift load, shave load, uh, to ensure that they have uh, you know enough capacity to cover demand. So you can read more about that story also uh, at newsdata.com, and that's by uh, Steve Ernst. And then, uh, let's, yeah, uh, interesting story. Definitely, you should check it out. 
Yeah, I see. Um, it's a little bit surprising to me that, you know, these are pilots and it really at this point, 2022, that demand demand response DR hasn't been looked at a bit, you know, a little bit more closely. 24.4 million. I don't know where that sits with uh PGE's overall budget, but um glad to see them taking some steps towards it. It's a it's a very active highly calibrated program in California that is it's definitely central to grid planning and operation. And I mean, surprisingly, PGE has been at the forefront of a lot of these pilots. So to your point, yeah, this is something that I, uh, I think you could have argued utilities should have been starting a few years ago. Um, I think the transition has come on faster than a lot of utilities expected mm-hmm. uh, and, and reasonably so. I mean, there's been a rapid uh, wave of states adopting policies, uh, pushing towards non-carbon energy. Uh, still, yeah, I mean, it's surprising that these pilots weren't, you know, they weren't aggressively pursuing them to 2018, yeah. 2019, when they were, I think the writing on the wall was becoming more and more clear. So. I guess they must have had something in place because I'm looking at the article. It says customers in the DR program shaved 62 megawatts off PG&E's PG&E, PGE, uh, that's Portland <laughs> General, not Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, yeah, shaved that off the peak during the infamous heat dome in the summer of 2021. So uh, I guess it's a, a work in progress. Yeah, no, I mean, to that, that point of um, PGE has definitely been a uh, is, is more at the forefront on a lot of these issues. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, with electrification too, they've uh, got pilot programs that are much further along and, and programs that they've, uh, that it, based on that, um, their previous work uh, in terms of mostly transportation, electrification and demand response. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, uh, you know, one other story this last week in the, in the current issue so four Mountain West states are competing to get some of the uh, $8 billion allocated in the 2021 Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act uh, towards a regional clean hydrogen hub uh, that would be have elements of it spread across Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. This is another one of those just stories about how uh, kind of something that I think we're going to be talking about a lot more in coming years. And there's hydrogen is a really fascinating topic to listen to debates about, you know, how much is of clean hydrogen is going to be available. What are the other industries that can't do fuel switching? You know, what, how much of the supply are they going to be taking up such as fertilizer, which they don't, they have an alternative for uh, using hydrogen. So Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see. Um, how that that uh, matures as we as we move along, but uh, states are definitely states and entities are certainly putting in the time now to uh, try to try to build out those systems. So those those are the uh, the teasers, the updates that we've got for this week. Check out more at uh, newsdata.com. and you can find us on social media on Twitter at uh, we're at cu newsdata. And you guys are C- at CEM News Data. Yep. Uh, and we've got our catch all social or Twitter account at Energy News Data. Doc, uh, I keep wanting to say dot com, but that's not it. No, I got, I got <laughs> I, you. 
Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so anyways, I, I, that's all I have for this week. Jason, uh, you want to add any anything or, or uh, do you want to sign us off? Sure. Uh, now that's about it from here in California. I'd like to wish everybody a happy Fat Tuesday. I think we could all use yeah. a little yeah. happiness celebration. We had our Mardi Gras parade here in Nevada City on Sunday and walked in the parade with my daughter, played some drums. And it's just so fantastic to see people out enjoying themselves, dressing up. And it's something that I, we really need. So happy Fat Tuesday to everybody. Yeah. It, okay. Before you do the sign off, I'm, I'm just going to throw this in there quickly. I have to say also, that's right. Uh, Wednesday is one of my favorite holidays of the year, like holy days, holidays, um, Ash Wednesday. It's mm-hmm. one of the most, I'm an Episcopalian. My family's more Episcopalians and, uh, one of the most moving, uh, you know, religious services of, of the year where it's very, it's sort of Lent, very stripped mm-hmm. down, um, they, you know, you go and you get the, uh, they, we burn the palms from Palm Sunday the previous year and they take the ash, they do a little cross on your forehead. Uh, it's uh, just one of the things I look forward to each year. It's, uh, like I said, very, very moving. It really takes you out of the normal, your day-to-day life. And, yeah. uh, so, and it's very much about like humility and Hey, sure. dust to dust, ashes to ashes, check yourself. <laughs> right. as, we, as we go into Lent before Easter celebration. Uh, so, yeah. all okay. right. Well, That's thanks enough for sharing your. No, not at all. Thank, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Please turn in next week for Energy West. You've been listening to News Data's Energy West, a podcast about the energy industry today and where it's going tomorrow. 